0: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the final panel of the afternoon. Um, I'm very excited about this conference in general. I can only claim having the idea for this conference and Matthew Feeney and Jonathan Blanks really actually did most of the work to put it together, so I want to thank them, in addition to the conference staff. Uh, we had, a, as Matthew, I think, mentioned at the outset, uh, we had a personal emergency for Peter Kraska, so Clark Neely has graciously agreed to step in for this panel which maybe slightly changes what the panel is about, but we'll see. Uh, Clark is a very knowledgeable guy. He talk about a lot of things. Uh, I'm gonna introduce the speakers before they talk. So we're gonna start off with uh, Jerry Radcliffe. Uh, Jerry is a professor and the chair of the Department of Criminal Justice at Temple University in Philadelphia, where he also directs the Center for Security and Crime Science. He previously served as an officer with the Metropolitan Police in London His research examines the effectiveness of police strategies, intelligence-led policing, and crime science. Uh, Please welcome Jerry Radcliffe.
1: Technology works. Okay, super. Thank you very much, Trevor. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for sticking with us all the way through to this afternoon. Um, And I'm going to talk a little bit about harm-focused policing. You're thinking, what on earth is that? Well, let me start by... um, drawing your attention to this lovely photograph, unfortunately taken at the scene of a homicide in Philadelphia. Um, And what struck me about it is the changing role of policing over the last 20, 25 years. Um, And I'm going to show you some figures in a moment, but fortunately for the last 20 years, violent crime has been coming down. When the role of policing has changed, and perhaps it might be worth thinking just for a moment about the little girl in this picture, how can policing look out for this little girl as she's growing up? We're heavily focused, almost fixated on violent crime and and serious predatory violence. Um, But fortunately, statistically, especially with the reduction in crime, she's less likely than she has in the past to as she's growing up being a victim of violent crime. She's much more likely to have her car stolen. She's more likely to be the victim of fraudulent and biased lending practices. She's more likely to feel discomfort walking to the corner store because people there seem threatening. She's more likely to be the victim of domestic disorder and domestic violence. She's likely to be bullied at school. She's likely to have harms just by walking down the street and people who are no longer being looked after in uh, mental health institutions, she might find them threatening even though the majority of them are not. So the nature of why we think about crime is one component of the issue that this little girl's going to grow up with. But the bigger issue for her is likely to be dealing with these broader harms that affect her and everybody in her community. Um, So I would like you to believe the hype, and that hype is I'm going to talk about the first of these because I believe the future of policing is harm-focused, intelligence-led, problem-oriented policing because there's a massive amount of uh, research evidence that supports problem-oriented policing, Um, and evidence-based policing the mechanisms by which we learn and understand um, what works and what doesn't in policing. But I'm going to focus on, in the time I have, the harm-focused policing. And Fortunately, we're a little bit after lunch because I'm going to tell you a little uh, story about my time when I, was, uh, I ran away from home as a 17-year-old and joined the police because the circus wasn't in town and, and found myself at a, at a very young age, probably too young, um, on the streets of East End of London uh, patrolling, uh, it was the, the poorest neighbourhood in England and Wales at the time, and it still is. Patrolling uh, beautiful 60s concrete monstrosities of the brutalist architecture phase, such as Balfour Towers here in East London. Um, and it was on one of the floors of a building just like this that I went to one of my first murder scenes. Uh, a couple of immigrant families uh, were living next door to each other. Uh, the young man from one house took quite a shine to the young lady in the next door apartment and it was reciprocated and when everybody's family was, was away he popped round next door uh, to consummate love as was the uh, style at the time. Unfortunately her brothers returned and in the furore that took place uh, they took hold of a kitchen knife and separated him from his offending member. Uh, he bled to death. Now, that is obviously a homicide that the police are seriously concerned about and worried about, and is one of the metrics that we would definitely use uh, in terms of assessing the health of the community and in terms of assessing uh, the effectiveness of our police. Uh, But just down the road, one of the issues I also had to deal with was a young man from a nearby housing project who um, had some, obviously, mental health problems, and he liked to go to the the subway, the, the, the pedestrian underpass, that went underneath the interstate, uh, as you would call it here, as we would call it, the interstate that ran down to the Blackwall Tunnel northern approach. Um, What he would like to do is wait for young women to come through the underpass. He would uh, expose himself and masturbate in front of them. Now, uh, we always knew it was him when the, the few times the young women would come to the police station and make a complaint, we would always go around and arrest him. And he would say, how would you know it was me? says, well, occasionally young men will do this, but you're the only one who will unscrew all the light fittings and who paints his penis luminous green. (laughs) Now, you may be thinking, why are you telling us these two stories? And thank you very much for disturbing the rest of my day. Uh, But the point is this. If we are only fixated on violent crime, we will recognize and obviously pay attention to the first, the homicide. Even though it's highly likely that a replication is very unlikely, sorry for that oxymoron there, Um, it's unlikely to be replicated, and the impact will likely affect two families and possibly a few of the other people who will be disturbed in the building. Whereas the young man was doing that every week, every other week, or more frequently, because we don't know how many weren't reported. And so one wonders about the collective community harm for the young man in the underpass and how harmful that is to the community when we're really only fixated on violent crime. So why is this relevant? Because policing has changed in the last um, 20, 25 years. Uh, Actually, a little bit further. This is going back to 1960. And using 1960 as an index year, we can see that the change in the number of police officers available to police the streets of America increased by a little over 150%. And using 1960 as a base, if we look at the change in the level of recorded crime, We can see from the 70s and 80s, we went through this massive demand gap where the demands on police resources far outstripped the capacity of us to to, uh, increase police numbers to cope with it. So we ended up, especially in the 80s and the 90s, trying to come up with many different innovative strategies and different ways to combat the crime problem. So you may think, well, things have gone really well in recent years. uh, The crime numbers have come down and we're almost back to where we were in the 1960s but other societal changes have taken place during that time. One of the changes that has an impact on this is mental health spending across the United States. Over the last 25 years, what started, we would spend two thirds of our spending on inpatient and residential care has changed. Now, as anybody who works in policing knows, we have this shift towards the criminal justice system being the best replacement we apparently have for mental health care spending. And where has that shift in spending gone? It's not gone towards outpatient treatment, it's gone to prescription chemicals and drugs. And there's this massive shift in surveillance from trained professionals out to the street and to the community and eventually, uh, well, not even eventually, the, the criminal justice system. So even though the crime situation's improved, the change for policing has occurred. And so what we have is a change of policing away from crime, which it was fixated with largely during the 80s and 90s. It was never really all about crime, but there's a tendency to think of it that way. If we think about what we ask the police to do, there's a whole myriad of activities that only a certain number of which are uh, related to crime. We ask them to deal with, yes, traffic enforcement and firearms violations and organized crime, But we also worry about uh, matters of public disorder that are hugely harmful to communities. You go to any community uh, community meeting and there are always requests for the police to do more. And you think it's going to be about the shootings and it's going to be about the violence. And it's often not, even in the worst communities in places like Philadelphia. It's about the minor day-to-day disorder. Because if there is a shooting, it could be in the next street and you may never know about it. But boy, if you go down that street most of the time and there are a bunch of guys hanging around that you're scared of or there are traffic problems and you nearly get run over when you're trying to walk the kids to school, some of the minor stuff gets to be really irritating and a significant drain on community health. So we think about what this involves. Well, in the top right in the red, in the red section, or it's kind of looking pink under the screen, uh, we see some of the traditional and some of the newer uh, crime uh, activities that uh, obviously concern policing, some of them which is counterterrorism and violent crime. But in the section down at the bottom, we see some of these minor disorder. These are the sort of issues that really affect communities on that day-to-day base that just drag them down so that communities can be tired. Above those, in the middle, you can see activities that we would probably consider surveillance activities, keeping an eye, make sure everything's going okay. And then there are all those activities down the left-hand side. All those things just keep the grease, the wheels of a community spinning, those community maintenance type of activities. So these are all the activities that we ask the police to do. But what do we ask them to be accountable for? And you can see that in places such as here in Philadelphia, where this is a, an equivalent as a crime briefing in Philadelphia, Philadelphia Police Department. Um, and uh, what UN, uh, you have crime uh, ComStat meetings in other places. And more often than not, they're pretty much solely focused on crime and violent crime. And that's probably... Um, essential. Unfortunately, what we end up with is that we ask the police to focus on this um, significantly. It impacts other aspects of police behaviour, much of which you've heard about today. Um, And you can tell that we ask police to really care about this kind of stuff, almost to the exclusion of other things, when you can follow what's going on in the media. Uh, For example, here we have a news, uh, an article online from the Philadelphia uh, magazine, Philadelphia's Affiliate's murder rate is skyrocketing again in 2014, that's the highlight, even though it was written a little optimistically uh, on January the 14th, only two (laughs) weeks into the year, um, but admirably at 5.20 a.m., so I marge all for being up at that time of the day. Uh, But, you know, two weeks into the year... Um, it's, it's already a crisis. In the end, we finished a year, the year with one of the lowest homicide rates we've had in the last 20 years. But you can see this is where the emphasis comes from. And so I thought I'd uh, come along this afternoon and ha- let you have a little look at some of the, the data. This is, um, this is all the, the uh, incident data from Philadelphia, from the Philadelphia Police Department for 2014. And there are 100 boxes, so each box represents 1% of the workload of the police. This isn't the proactive work they're doing. This is all the work they're asked to do by the community. This is all the, co- not all, the co- uh, all the calls coming in and all the things that register as an actual incident the police have to deal with. And so maybe audience participation time. How many of the boxes will be filled up with homicide? Anybody like to have a guess? So, one? One box? Anybody say higher than that? Five boxes. Okay, the amount of boxes filled up with police activity and homicide is this much. There you go. Did you see it? You probably didn't. Let me see if the laser pointer works. It's that little red line there.
2: That's orange. Well, okay, that's orange. <laughs> Tough crowd <for> this afternoon. <laughs> Tough
1: crowd for this afternoon. That's it. Police chiefs get hired and fired. People panic left, right, and center at the end of the year about changes in that much activity. If we throw in all the serious violent crime, I can fill up a box and change. If the machine behaves itself. There we go. I can fill up a box and change. If we include in that um, all the other serious part one crime. There we go. I can fill up six boxes. We're not even off the bottom row. Guns and drugs. Big worry, isn't it? Guns and drugs. Fill three, four, ten boxes. What do we think? Five boxes? Yep, yeah, we can get away with filling just one box for all the narcotics activity, all the drug arrests, all the firearm violations. That's it. Okay. So what about uh, domestic disputes? Domestic disputes complete the bottom row. Okay, part two crimes, all the minor activities, that fills up a chunk of time. Um, Disturbances, general disturbances, police get called, there's a fight on the street corner, there's other problems going on, there's somebody going a bit crazy on the tube station, we don't have those on the subway, let's keep it to America.
2: (laughs) Um,
1: So, and you can see quality of life issues, minor quality of life issues, and then dealing with and having to think about vulnerable persons, people with mental health problems, people with uh, who are homeless, um, kids playing truant and so forth. Um, that actually takes up much more police time than any of the violent crime. And I can continue. Traffic, traffic incidents, DUIs, traffic accidents takes up 5 6% of police activity. And then generally the public calling and saying, hey, there's a car, it's been parked there for a while, or my neighbour's not in, can you go and see? I haven't heard from my neighbour a while, can you go around? Investigating a car or investigating a premises... Um, investigating a a location takes up a huge amount of police time. So you can see here, false alarms. False alarms take up pretty much the same amount of time, uh, if not more, actually, than all the violent and part one crime completed by the, the Philadelphia police activity. And then community maintenance. I talked about some of those community maintenance a little bit earlier. They take up a whole chunk of police effort. And then finally, unfounded radio calls take up the rest of it. And those are all the radio calls where the police officer turns up and can't figure out why somebody called in the first place. (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: Or at least um, there is no evidence to some degree uh, that that there is anything we can significantly put a a number on. So what do we focus on? We focus everything on this little section down here. Um, To the detriment of not including all these other things in our measure of community health or uh, the police. So what do we do with this? Well, we're trying to find ways in Philadelphia of weighing crimes, as Larry Sherman has said, on the basis of sentencing guidelines as a starting point, justified on good democratic grounds and reflecting the will of the people, which is great, and I'm sure you appreciate that here at the Cato Institute. It's a little time-consuming. In Pennsylvania Crime Code, we have an offense gravity score. Um, So we have taken all the crime and the incidents that Philadelphia deal with, and we've applied a weighting associated with the sentencing. Um, There's quite a few of them. As you can see, so it took a little bit of time. Yeah, that wasn't a weekend, by the way. It took a little bit longer than that. Uh, don't worry, this is the rest of my presentation. This goes on for about 12 more minutes. now. Um, so what do we do with this? How does this change our perception of harm in the community? Well, here is some work that I was doing with the Police Foundation in Wilmington, Delaware. And you can see here, uh, just around Washington and Fourth, there are a couple of crime hotspots. If you just look at violence... Uh, But if you look to the left of the city, there are a couple little red areas. If we change that metric to think about harm, it doesn't make violence go away. I'm not saying we should ignore violence. I'm saying we should put additional weight into thinking about these other metrics. If we look at harm, if we look to the left of the city, you can see this area here. That's an area where members of the public are having to put up with drugs and violence as well, but lower level violence and intimidation and retaliatory crime and all those other minor, there's there's arguably as much harm taking place there as there is um, in other areas, even though not not as much of it is violence. I'm not saying we should ignore violence by any stretch of the imagination, it should be the predominant uh, thing, but there are ways to think about these other ways that communities can be harmed. And this is where it gets a little bit more interesting because if we look at um, part one crime, measures of harm associated with part one crime in, Philadelphia, in one Philadelphia district over 10 years, we can see it comes down a little bit. We add the part two crime and we even add a wait for the traffic accidents because that's still a harm the community suffer. What we can see is there is a decline over time, which is great. But what about if we think about building in some of the other metrics that we care about? What about if we consider a very small waiting, perhaps, for every single pedestrian stop? Now, I'm with Cynthia Lum, and I agree in some of the evidence that we have from our research with the Philadelphia Police Department does support the fact that some, uh, the increases in pedestrian stops have been associated with reductions in violent crime. If you're interested in that in research, please Google the Philadelphia Foot Patrol Experiment. But if we were to think about finding some way to constrain over excessive uh, command enthusiasm, for example, for something as contentious as pedestrian stops, what we might want to do is to think about including a slight measure for those. Now, I'm not saying that I'm saying we shouldn't do pedestrian stops. But completely uncontrolled, unfettered pedestrian stops may not be the most judicious use of our police if it goes to the state of having significant impacts on community uh, respect for police and police legitimacy. So, by adding a small weighting for pedestrian stops, we were able to find that this police district was able to reduce matters. Now, when we look at this harm weighting, what we can see is just by adding a simple linear scale, um, this is not very complicated, but by adding a linear line to the Part 1 crime, which is mainly the violence, we can see that Part 1 crime came down. If we look at the overall harm score, because these are cumulative adding them up, we can actually see that in this district they were able to reduce community harm even more. Compare that to another district... Uh, where they have a significant part one crime issue. Um, part two as well. We'll add in the traffic accidents that I talked about. But then if we look at the pedestrian stops, their pedestrian stops increased significantly from about 2008. Now, these are only linear indicators, so it's just an example. and I, I put an arbitrary weight on the pedestrian stops. But what we can see here is on initial superficial measures, we saw oh, not superficial at all. Nobody wants to be the victim of violent crime. That was uh, the wrong thing to say. But certainly it looks like violent crime is coming down. But if we think about all these other issues like part two crime traffic accidents from the community perspective, we actually have an increase in that measure of harm. So what am I saying with all of this? Um, I think we should, uh, it's very much a, a simple as Theo Lum was saying, if we want to drive accountability and a change in business practice, we have to change this metric of what we hold police departments accountable for. By holding just accountable for violent crime, we allow ourselves to drive our police by that incredibly small metric, whereas actual police work, the reality of police work in the 21st century now involves so much more. Um, The nice thing about it is that community harm weights can be determined by the community. We uh, were using sentencing guidelines, um, but there are other ways that you can do that. A community could determine what it wants to take seriously and what it wants to be concerned about. Non-crime data could certainly work in this. I'm trying to help uh, push, (laughs) suggest to the city of Philadelphia to think about district-level community surveys as a metric by which we ask police captains to be accountable from those areas. Drug markets. Not all drug markets are that harmful. Yes, I said it. Um, And you're going to be very happy about that, aren't you, sir? But. The reality is, if we only have limited resources to tackle all the drug markets in the city, why not focus on the ones that are most harmful in terms of causing drug overdoses Um, and and have that as a non-crime metric by which we determine how to focus policing? It could be more reflective of police work, the community concerns, and can think about incorporating ways to think about all those other areas where the community have concerns about the public intrusion into their lives. And maybe in the next 20 years, as this little little girl grows up, we can think about different ways to keep her safe from a variety of harms and not just violent crime. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Jerry. Uh, Our next speaker will be uh, David A. Klinger, who's a professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, He received a BA in History from Seattle Pacific University, a Master's in Justice from American University and a PhD in Sociology from the University of Washington. Prior to pursuing his graduate degrees, Professor Klinger worked as a patrol officer for the Los Angeles and Redmond, Washington Police Departments. He has published scholarly manuscripts that addressed arrest practices, the use of force, how features of communities affect the actions of patrol officers and terrorism. He has also conducted three federally funded research projects dealing with the use of force by police officers. officer involved shootings and the other on police special weapons and tactics. His book on officer involved shootings into the kill zone a cop's eye view of deadly force was published in 2004. Please welcome Professor Klinger.
3: I don't know how I can top uh, Jerry's presentation both in terms of the fancy schmancy stuff and the introduction about uh, phallic stuff happening. Uh, But what I want to do is I want to take a a different tack, and what I want to do is I want to basically start out where uh, my book title comes from, and that's A Cop's Eye View. And what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about uh, what I've learned over the years from spending time on the street, myself as a police officer many, many years ago, and spending a lot of time doing research uh, by interviewing police officers who've uh, been involved in shootings and uh, other research that I've done regarding what police officers do on a daily basis, and sort of talk about uh, what's going on here in terms of the um, crisis of confidence in law enforcement from uh, essentially the ground up. Um, I will obviously tie in some of the uh, the scholarly stuff that I'm supposed to do because I am a a scholar now, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to convey at least a police officer's uh, perspective from the ground up. And uh, I want to start out by saying, uh, to to get my Cato uh, bona fides uh, up and running, I did write a book, uh, excuse me, a chapter for the book after Prohibition many many years ago. Uh, I am uh, one of those many many police officers who believes we uh, need to get out of the war on drugs. It's been a complete disaster. Um, I had the good fortune of developing a relationship with Gil Kurlikowski, who was the drug czar, who now is in charge of Custom and Border Patrol uh, many years ago from our time in Seattle together. And to make a very long story short, we had dinner one night, and my 18-year-old daughter at the time, Carly, was with us. And this was after Gil had been um, nominated but had not yet been uh, confirmed by the Senate. And we were talking about stuff, and he turned to my daughter uh, who was uh, just out of, uh, just about to graduate high school, and says, well, Carly, what do you think about uh, what the Obama administration should do? And she went on about a 12-minute rant about why it is that drugs should be legalized. He looked at me about halfway through. I just smiled. Uh, when it was all over, he said, that's a very articulate uh, argument, but I don't think that's the tack the Obama administration is going to take. So at any rate, both Dave Klinger and Carly Klinger had an opportunity to lobby uh, the Obama administration, and they haven't listened to us. But at any rate, uh, on that point... It basically sets the table for what I want to talk about, and that is that police officers on the line are doing jobs that the rest of society, those in power, have told them to do, to enforce drug laws, to deal with all sorts of other problems. Uh, Jerry pointed it out, uh, the issue of dealing with mentally ill people, people who are emotionally disturbed, where they don't have a place to go anymore because of deinstitutionalization and because of the rise of uh, psychopharmaceuticals and so on and so forth. And so police officers are stuck at the bottom having to deal with this stuff day in and day out, and oftentimes um, even the best intended police officer really doesn't know what to do because there is no good answer for what he or she is supposed to do to resolve a particular situation. And so what I wanna do by using that setup as as a platform is talk a little bit about some of the issues as I see it about how we can improve policing down the line. And the first thing I wanna talk about uh, is accountability, something that uh, is near and dear to many people here, including uh, Sam Walker, who is uh, one of the people who has uh, been at the forefront of this effort. And one of the issues when it comes to accountability is what we wanna try to do is we wanna try to figure out how to hold officers accountable before essentially they step over the line that is figure out ways to hold officers to a high standard when there are some minor problems going on before they blow up and so we have early intervention systems we have early warning systems and to make a very long story short what this is all about is trying to track officers and their uses of force and their maybe sick leave abuse so on and so forth to identify those officers who are likely to step over the line in a serious fashion the problem with this is that we don't understand we don't yet know what the metric should be what particular types of behaviors do we need to look at and how to weight them in terms of scoring them in this uh, process and how long a period of time do we look for how many of these things six months two years whatever the case might be and so. There is some research going on presently to try to figure out if we can come up with the appropriate metric. But right now, early warning or early intervention systems are something that's being sold to law enforcement, and we don't really know if it's going to have the um, advertised uh, effect. And so line officers that I talk to are scratching their heads saying, Dave, we want to be held accountable. We understand that we don't have the right to do X, Y, and Z, unconstitutional behavior, so on and so forth. But on the other hand, one of the things we know is that our administration, they're going to start pegging us and they're going to start looking for problems that they can plug into this early intervention system and we're going to feel as if we're going to be left holding the bag and we're not being treated appropriately. And that's another thing that uh, officers are talking about. Uh, there is a, a move afoot and one of the, uh, one or two of the speakers mentioned it earlier in terms of value-based discipline, trying to figure out ways to identify um, how it is to approach when an officer does something wrong. And oftentimes police officers um, violate policy or otherwise do something ill-advised, not because they have a malign heart, but because they make a mistake. They make an honest mistake. And so how is it that we can develop um, appropriate discipline so that officers are not merely punished for uh, doing something wrong, but also being led along and being taught when they make a mistake as opposed to doing something evil? Which leads to another issue, and that is that unfortunately... Uh, many police officers I speak with across the country tell me that their administration really doesn't care that much about them doesn't really care that much about improving policing but rather what they really care about is their own promotion in the police organization and then if they're the chief making sure that they hang on to their job and so what we have is we have reactionary discipline we have police managers looking for problems so they can report up to their chief hey look Look at all the good stuff I did in terms of getting my guys and gals in trouble. And then we have police chiefs who sometimes, uh, in a knee-jerk way, will move to discipline. And one of the uh, the examples I'm intimately familiar with is a situation in Dallas, Texas, where a police officer by the name of Cardin Spencer was involved in a shooting. He shot a mentally disturbed individual, an individual who needed some help, the officers are called there, and within a very short period of time, unfortunately, uh, Carden Spencer fired four rounds at the suspect. The suspect was struck one time, and the suspect went down. Mentally ill person went to lawsuits, so on and so forth. But before that, within nine days, the chief moved to fire Carden Spencer, and in fact fired Carden Spencer. Interestingly enough, black police officer, white suspect. At any rate, to make a very long story short... My best understanding from having been involved in litigation, read all the relevant depositions, so on and so forth, is Dallas Police Department has done absolutely nothing to look at their internal policies and procedures to figure out what happened that may have led this officer, and by the way, his partner officer who didn't shoot, took 15 days off for violating some, uh, some policies and procedures and for allegedly being untruthful. But anyway, so we have two police officers that have very good records one who is no longer on the job and one who takes 15 days suspended and his career is basically toast. He's never going to get promoted, never going to be able to overcome this. Um, But the DPD has not looked at what happened there. And I'd be more than willing to chat with anybody afterwards or multiple people afterwards about how a causal analysis of what went on, what we call a root cause analysis, would identify some problems with the way that DPD trains officers, with the way that they hold their supervisors accountable for managing officers in the field and their entire review process. And so what police officers tell me is, Hey, hold us accountable for our mistakes, but we also want our managers to be held accountable all the way up the chain of command. Um, another thing, uh, in terms of the, the the issue of what police officers are, are asking for in terms of moving forward. Um, is really trying to turn police organizations into what we call learning organizations. And this is something that Ed McGuire, who is at American University, has done quite a bit of work uh, on. And then there's a group of others in uh, organizational social psychology who've talked about how it is that we can promote learning in organizations. And the first thing about promoting learning in organizations is being honest with yourself as an organization being honest with the mistakes that we make, being honest about the improper policies that we have, being honest about the challenges that we face, and figure out ways to shift and change the way that we train, to shift and change the way that we hold people accountable up and down the line. And if we do this, some of, not all of, some of the problems that we see in terms of these egregious um, situations where police officers use too much force will go by the wayside. So we want to turn... um, police organizations into learning laboratories is the term of art. Um, Another thing that uh, circles back onto what uh, Cynthia Lum was talking about earlier in terms of uh, what she is talking about in terms of the need to promote public safety but also the need to have community uh, buy-in, for lack of a better word. One of the things that if you've never been a police officer you really can't get is that you're caught between a rock and a hard spot because by definition you are going to be called upon in many circumstances to act against somebody's best interest. Go to a family dispute, two people are arguing, If there's any sort of violence involved, you have to take action against at least one of those people. You're moving against somebody's interest. When you pull somebody over to write them a traffic ticket, you're moving against their interest, so on and so forth. And so officers, by doing what the community calls them to do in terms of arresting men that batter women, in terms of writing tickets to people who are speeding, so on and so forth, by definition they're acting against somebody's interest. And consequently, the public doesn't like it when it's them that are being arrested, when it's them that are being written up. Um, And so over time, as people see more and more of what the cops are doing, they become less and less supportive of law enforcement. And so this tension between what the community demands that officers do, i.e. take enforcement action, at the same time holding officers to account and saying, well, you shouldn't have done it that way, you shouldn't have written that ticket, you shouldn't have arrested my brother, my neighbor, whatever the case might be, cops are caught between a, a rock and a hard spot. Um, and one of the things that uh, I used to believe was that so long as a police officer was behaving in a constitutional fashion, which is uh, one of the things Director Davis was talking about, that everything's going to be fine. As long as you are behaving in a constitutionally permissible fashion, you're going to be okay. And let's go back to the issue of stop and frisk. Um, Jerry said it, that we need to have appropriate stop and frisk. Uh, Cynthia said "It you need to have appropriate stop and, stop and frisk. That is one that meets the dictates of Terry versus Ohio, that you have a situation, you have reasonable suspicion to believe crime is afoot, and then on top of that, reasonable suspicion to believe the individual may be in possession of a weapon. Go ahead and stop and frisk. That's all good. Even when police officers are doing things constitutionally legitimate, they get gigged. And so one of the things that uh, I think that we need to do in terms of this movement to try to shift American policing away from some troubling practices is to have honest dialogue about what the Constitution says have honest dialogue about what police officers are doing have honest dialogue about what the limits of police reform might be and don't just hold the line officers accountable hold everybody up and down the chain of command uh, accountable and so if we want to have real reform what we've got to do is we've got to move away from discipline that seeks to punish police officers only we need to move to a discipline system that seeks to punish officers who need to be punished and re-educate officers that need, need re-education and not in the Cambodian, uh, you know, genocide type of re-education. I hope everybody understands what I'm talking about. Uh, and also the police organizations need to start value learning, not just for the officer, but for everybody up and down the chain of command. Um, I think uh, I'm just about out of time. I will stop and I'd be looking forward to uh, any questions to be directed my way and I'll stick around a little bit after the panel's over before I have to head off to my airplane. Thank you.
0: Thank you, David. Our final speaker will be Clark Neely. He has joined the Institute for Justice as a senior attorney in 2000. He litigates economic liberty, property rights, school choice, First Amendment, and other constitutional cases before both federal and state courts. He is also the director of IJ Center for Judicial Engagement, which was created to challenge the unconstitutional expansion of government by articulating a principled vision of judicial review. He has written a book about judicial engagement titled Terms of Engagement, which I highly recommend. He received his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Texas, to which I say Boomer Sooner, where he was Chief Articles Editor of the Texas Law Review. After law school, he clerked for Judge Royce Lamberth on the U.S. District Court for the District District of Columbia. Please welcome Clark Neely.
4: Thank you. you. Thanks, Trevor, for having me on such short notice. Um, No, it's nice to be here. This is a a particular interest of mine. It's been a fascinating uh, conference. I've enjoyed the opportunity to, to come and hear people speak. Before I dive in, I wanted to um, help you guys out with something you may be wondering about. In Jerry's presentation, he, he had a, a Philly Magazine article uh, online uh, up on the screen. Did anybody notice what was the number one story that day? It was that it's now legal to deliver beer in Pennsylvania with fat with food orders, and so I checked, and it's true. You can get up to twelve tall boys of beer delivered with your pizza in in uh, Philadelphia. So, in case you were wondering what was going on with that story, now, now you know what you can do in, in uh, the city of brotherly love when it comes to uh, getting a buzz with your pizza. Um, so, I want to uh, I want to pick up on a theme that that, that seems to be sort of interwoven through a lot of the, the presentations today, and one that I think is incredibly important for the, for the overall subject matter, and that is the, um, the public perception of police legitimacy. Without uh, a solid uh, basis in, in public confidence and uh, public support, it's very difficult, uh, more difficult, for our law enforcement officers to do their job. And I want to talk about one policy in particular that I think is maybe one of the greatest threats to public perceptions of legitimacy of law enforcement, and that is civil forfeiture. Notice I don't use the term civil asset forfeiture, because I think that puts the emphasis on the wrong place, and it makes it sound like we all go around with these assets, you know, like uh, my car, oh my god, I've got got this asset. No, it's civil forfeiture. And what that means is taking people's property uh, without convicting them of a crime. That's what civil forfeiture is. Uh, And my organization has a study that uh, we just updated uh, uh, this month called Policing for Profit, and unfortunately that really summarizes the issue in the minds of many people, that uh, this policy, civil forfeiture, has created a system in which at least some of our law enforcement is, in fact, engaged in policing for profit. And unfortunately, that's a true. It's an accurate perception, at least in, in some settings. Uh, and I think that, that it's been terribly damaging for the uh, perceptions of public legitimacy. Let me start off with um, uh, a quick anecdote. I've litigated uh, some of these forfeiture cases, by the way. The Institute for Justice considers this a property rights issue, and we have a very active uh, civil forfeiture practice. I've litigated some of those cases, uh, so I, I'm, I'm quite familiar with this area. Um, But I want to talk about or I want to uh, convey an anecdote, a case that I'm not personally involved in, but um, I think illustrates in some ways uh, one of the biggest problems in this area, and that is the problem of perverse incentives. Um, There was a local TV station in Tennessee that documented a curious fact, and that is that um, along Interstate 40, which runs across the state of Tennessee, Uh, They noted that um, these uh, drug task forces, Tennessee has uh, drug task forces, multi-jurisdictional law enforcement groups that get together, try to um, uh, interdict drug traffic. What they noticed was that these drug task forces were setting up on the north side of I-40 90% of the time instead of the south side. Can anybody think why there would be such an interest in setting up on one side of the highway instead of the other? It turns out to be quite simple the uh, uh, drugs are generally moving from western states to eastern states. So you've got drugs coming in from California, Arizona, Texas, and they're moving to the east coast for sale. So the cars that are on the south side of the interstate moving east are full of drugs. The cars on the north side of the interstate moving west are full of what? Money, after the drugs have been sold, and guess which side of the interstate these task forces set up on 90% of the time, not the side that would enable them to interdict the distribution of these drugs to keep this deadly poison off of our streets, oh no. They set up on the other side of the highway so they can get the money. And I mean that literally, they get the money. Uh, It's not that the officers actually put the money in their pocket, well not, they're not supposed to. (laughs) I'm, I'm sure that happens, but no. As a matter of official policy, The money, the proceeds from these forfeitures go into law enforcement budgets, which is the second worst thing you can do besides allowing police officers to simply keep it individually. Uh, So you have this tremendous incentive uh, that warps law enforcement priorities, or maybe I should say can warp law enforcement priorities to have them not only investigating and working on crimes that may not be the most serious crimes in terms of the overall health of the community or people's well-being, uh, but that also reflect an interest in advancing the uh, budgetary interests of of that department more than uh, public welfare. Now, I'm not going to suggest that this happens all the time. I'm not going to suggest that it happens in every department. What I will say is nobody knows how often it happens, just that it happens. Quite a bit, by the way. The Tennessee situation that I described is far from the only uh, area where this has ever been shown. Uh, this distortion of law enforcement um, incentives: police have been frequently shown uh, to be more interested in interdicting cash than interdicting drugs. I mean, that's a huge problem. So. Uh, Where did civil forfeiture come from? Why do we have civil forfeiture? Uh, Well, there are two kinds. There's criminal forfeiture and civil forfeiture. Criminal forfeiture is, I think, unexceptionable. It's the kind of thing that happens when you accuse somebody of being a big-time drug dealer. Uh, You prove in court, uh, or else they sign a plea agreement confessing. Uh, that they've been bringing in large quantities of drugs from off, you know, the Florida Keys in in a speedboat. So you get to take the speedboat after you convict them of the crime of distributing drugs and show that the speedboat was used to facilitate that crime. If they stored the drugs in a house and used that as a distribution point, you get the house too. Again, after you've convicted the person of the crime of distributing drugs and shown that the house was used in the commission of that crime, and so on and so forth. If they had a sports car they were using, et cetera, you get to take that, and if they had a giant stack of money in the house, you get to take that. Civil forfeiture is quite different. Civil forfeiture does not require a criminal conviction. It doesn't even require that you indict the person or, or even arrest them for the crime. All the law enforcement has to do to initiate civil forfeiture is simply seize the property. It might be a car. It might be Uh, A bunch of cash inside the car might be somebody's home, but it can be done on the basis of nothing more than probable cause, which is nothing. Probable cause is simply, it's a little more than a hunch, but in most jurisdictions, it's not much more than a hunch. It's simply um, a a non-fanciful reason to believe that particular property may have been involved in a crime. And notice I said particular property. Because that's a very odd quirk about civil forfeiture. Uh, It is, in fact, a civil proceeding. It is a civil lawsuit against who or what? Not the person, not the property owner. It's actually the property itself. And you get these bizarre case names as a result, like United States versus $34,516.18. I worked on that case. That was the entire contents. Of the business account of our two clients, uh, Terry Deco and his daughter, Sandy, uh, who lived uh, and ran a store 20 miles outside of Detroit, Michigan, Um, the IRS criminal enforcement division concluded falsely on the basis of zero investigation beyond looking at their bank records that they were engaged in the federal crime of structuring, which is where you break up your cash deposits at a bank into amounts less than $10,000 to avoid the reporting requirement. Um, In their case, they were deliberately depositing less than $10,000 at a time because they had a small business insurance policy that, like most small business insurance policies, cuts off cash losses at $10,000. Apparently, no one at the IRS has ever run a small business, so they were unaware of this fact. Um, They've ruined a lot of small businesses, but they've never run one. Uh, And had anybody bothered to ask uh, Terry Deco why he was uh, making so many deposits under $10,000 and had been doing so for 25 years, He would have been happy to show them his insurance policy and say, because my insurance broker and my accountant said don't allow more than $10,000 in cash to accumulate in your store. But no one asked, because you know why? They didn't care. What they cared about was getting that money. And the way they got it was to go to the local federal uh, district judge and get um, an ex parte warrant, meaning a secret warrant uh, that in my experience federal judges hand out like Halloween candy, Uh, you go to the bank. You seize the entire account, and then you go over to the store to do a victory lap and let them know you've just taken the entire uh, bank account. And it happened to be on the day that Terry was trying to pay all of his vendors, uh, which caused the store to almost go bankrupt. Um, Let me just add, that store employed 28 people. If you employ 28 people within 100 miles of Detroit, you you deserve a medal. Not a not a subpoena uh, or a search warrant from the IRS taking your entire uh, bank account. But anyway, so you get these bizarre uh, cases: United States versus X amount of money. United States versus uh, a nineteen eighty six uh, Ford Thunderbird is an actual case. My favorite one: United States versus one solid gold object in the shape of a rooster. <laughs> I can imagine what they call that caper, for for alliteration. Um, thank you. All right. So. Um, civil forfeiture had its origins in, uh, in uh, 15th or 16th century England when they used it to seize the ships and contraband belonging to people who were trying to run blockades or run the uh, uh, British uh, had a law that you could only uh, deliver goods to England or Britain in, uh, in uh, British flagged ships and so other countries would have an incentive to try to get around those and so you used uh, basically an old time version of civil forfeiture to seize the contraband in the ship. Um, So this fiction that the property could be guilty of the crime made it across the Atlantic where it was used uh, during the colonial era here in America, and then it essentially went dormant. Until when? Well, until first prohibition, until the prohibition of alcohol in uh, 1919, and then suddenly you saw uh, the use of civil forfeiture, but nothing like on the scope we see it today. And once again, after the repeal of prohibition, it went dormant. Until when? Until the advent of prohibition two drug prohibition, and then civil forfeiture exploded. And what do I mean when I say exploded? Well, um, the Department of Justice maintains something called the Asset Forfeitures uh, Fund. In 1986, the annual uh, revenues, or the amount annual deposits of the DOJ's Asset Forfeitures Fund were $93.7 million, that's million with an M. In 2014, the last year for which figures were available, $4.5 billion. Um, If you look at the entire federal government, not just DOJ's asset forfeiture fund, in 2001, the amount of deposits uh, of forfeitures for the entire federal government, $500 million. In 2014, $5 billion. Uh, Forfeiture has exploded, and most of it is civil. We're not sure exactly how much. Why? Because the federal government doesn't break it out. DOJ keeps track of 1,300 different uh, bits of information about forfeiture. Not one of them involves the distinction between civil and criminal. We had to dig this information out of the records uh, through open records request from DOJ. So they keep track of 1,300 different things. They have no idea how much of their forfeiture comes in the form of criminal versus civil. And it matters a lot because with criminal forfeiture, lots of due process. With civil forfeiture, virtually no due process. So it matters tremendously, and DOJ has no idea. Um, There's another problem. In 15 minutes, I couldn't possibly tell you everything that's wrong with civil forfeiture, but I'm going to hit a couple of highlights. Another big problem is the ability of the federal government to distort local law enforcement priorities. I'll give you one example. Um, States that have moved uh, to decriminalize marijuana or outright legalize it. Uh, there is still a federal law against the uh, distribution or even the possession of marijuana and the federal government has said in many instances that it will continue to enforce federal law even in jurisdictions uh, where it has been made uh, uh, legal. We actually had a case in California where uh, we had a client who rented out a piece of commercial property to um, a medical marijuana uh, sales, sales front and it was perfectly fine under state law. But the uh, city of Anaheim Police Department wanted to go after the guy anyway, even though it was perfectly legal as a matter of state law. So they went to the feds and they invoked a policy called equitable sharing where the federal government can come in and simply by participating in the investigation, they can essentially federalize the forfeiture. So what they proposed to do, we were able to stop it in this instance, but what they do all the time is just have a little federal involvement um, in a forfeiture matter. The federal government will be the official seizing agency and then they'll basically kick back up to 80% of the proceeds back to the local jurisdiction, again, even in states where it's a violation of explicit state policy. The federal government forfeiture program is being used to pervert uh, local preferences, and that's a huge problem. A couple other problems with civil forfeiture. Um, There's a virtual absence of, of procedural due process. I can't catalog all the ways in which it is absent, but I will tell you this. About 90% of uh, federal uh, forfeitures are accomplished administratively, and what that means is no one bothered to challenge it. DOJ draws one conclusion, namely, we've got a really accurate uh, success rate. We're getting property from bad guys who know they shouldn't bother to challenge it. Uh, we tend to draw a different conclusion, which is that it is so difficult to challenge a civil forfeiture. And believe me, I've worked on these cases. The, the, the procedures are mind-numbingly complex. They make the, co- the, the tax code look like child's play. Um, uh, that no matter how innocent you are, the idea that you can go out and hire a lawyer and simply get your property back is is utterly fanciful. Uh, Another problem, virtually no transparency. As I mentioned before, DOJ keeps track of 1,300 different uh, bits of information about its forfeitures. None of that uh, pertains to whether it's criminal versus civil. Um, that extends also to local police departments. It is virtually impossible to find out how much money they're taking in and what they spend it on. And we've been trying to dig this information out of the federal government and local law enforcement agencies for over five years now, and it comes in in dribs and drabs. So one of the biggest problems with civil forfeiture is there's just nobody who has any idea of what its scope is and what the money is being spent on. None. Uh, Every once in a while, something funny will pop up. Uh, There's a DA's office in Texas that used some of the civil forfeiture money to buy a margarita machine. Um, If that made them less effective at doing civil forfeiture, I guess maybe that was a good thing, net-net, I'm not sure. Um, There's a few problems um, uh, that I'll just touch on really quickly with um, moving in the direction of reform. One of the biggest problems is supporters of asset forfeiture uh, say and maybe even believe things that are just not true. So one thing they'll tell you is you have to have civil forfeiture forfeiture to, to enable you to take down these drug kingpins. Well, first of all, if the guy's a kingpin, charge him and convict him. Shouldn't be too hard. He's a kingpin, right? Second, it's, it's statistically not supported. So in Philadelphia, for example, where we have a class action lawsuit going, the median amount of a cash forfeiture on the streets of Philadelphia is $134. I mean, I guess they have a different definition of kingpin than I do. Maybe I just missed something since I stopped watching Miami Vice in the 1980s, but I thought it was a bigger deal. Um, in Washington, D.C., it was even less. It was about 100 bucks, So that's the big time drug dealers running around Washington DC with 100 bucks in their pockets, but it's definitely being taken. Uh, Another myth that supporters of civil forfeiture uh, tend to cling to, which I can tell you is is absolutely false, is that there's a process for getting the property back. Actually, that part's true. There is a process. And it is completely rigged against the citizen. Uh, Just to give you one example, the infamous courtroom 478 in Philadelphia is where you have to go to contest forfeitures when the police take your property. It's not a courtroom, actually, because you know why? There's no judge in courtroom 478, at least not until about the fifth or sixth time you show up Um, When you show up the first time to contest a forfeiture, you meet with a prosecutor and they essentially give you a schedule and you have to come back four or five more times. And believe me, those are just hoops. And if you miss even one of those other appointments, then you default and they take your property. Maybe the fifth or sixth time you actually get to go in front of a judge, but if you're one of these people who had 134 bucks taken, how many days can you really take off work to get your 134 dollars back? And you think the the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office understands that dynamic? Oh, they understand that dynamic, trust me. Um, Final point is um, they'll tell you that abuses are rare. How in the world would you know? How do you know they're rare? You hope they're rare, I get that you hope they're rare, but the point is you have no idea whether they're rare. We know they happen, and I I can't tell you what percentage of the time there are abuses because I don't know either, and that's the problem nobody knows. But you have a a process civil forfeiture that has perverse incentives, namely law enforcement gets to keep the proceeds and virtually no due process. Um, All right, so what can we do? Reform, this is the short part of the talk. End it. End civil forfeiture, root and branch. New Mexico just did that uh, a couple months ago. That's the right direction. If you can't end it, then you do three things. Eliminate the profit incentive. All civil forfeiture proceeds uh, should go into a general fund, not a law enforcement fund. Second, you have to restore some procedural due process so that ordinary people who've had their property taken illegitimately can challenge the process, which is completely impossible now. And third, more transparency, a lot more. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Clark. As usual, you make me want to grab a pitchfork and store in the DOJ. We'll be distributing pitchforks after the session, but first we're going to have a Q&A, I believe, in the right of anonymous speech. So you do not have to identify. yourself. Nope. <laughs> Clark will like that, I know. Um, so please uh, raise your hand and ask a question in the actual form of a question for any of our panelists. Yes, yeah, sir, back there.
2: Um, Mark Kropansky with the Open Society Foundations. Uh, thank you all very much. Uh, part of what interested me in this conference was the title of this panel. Uh, I work uh, mostly on harm reduction, uh, working with law enforcement globally uh, to design and implement harm, re- harm reduction strategies, particularly for people who use drugs and sex workers, so things like diversion or simply uh, not arresting people for carrying syringes or condoms. Um, so, I'm wondering, my question is an open one uh, for you all, is, is what, if we're serious about expanding a police officer's toolkit beyond arrest, and if we're serious about reducing harm in the community, um, what do you see as viable alt- alternatives to arrest, uh, as long as law enforcement is involved in things that are really public health concerns and not criminal justice concerns?
1: Jerry? Sure. Um, do I need to press the button? Uh, no, that, that shuts you up. Okay. Okay. I think we're good, yes? All right, splendid. Um, uh, Cynthia Lum touched on this very nicely in her talk, if you saw that uh, just before lunch. Uh, we need to rethink the accountability and the reward mechanisms. We need to rethink how we approach uh, the the goals of what we want and what we ask and how we reward people. Um, you know for federal agencies they seem to be pretty much fixated for example on arrests and forfeiture I've been working with the FBI and other agencies and their hearts in the right place but most of them can spend most of their time they can tell you how many years the person they arrested was incarcerated for they can't tell you whether it had any beneficial impact on the community Um, so if that's what we reward that's what we're going to get for uh, street policing Uh, We will reward, some police departments will, you know, even if it's just culturally within the agency, we'll reward uh, those people who are known, when I was a young cop, were known as thief-takers, those guys that had an innate knowledge for for identifying and and arresting offenders. Um, There's no evidence that all of that work that they did necessarily had a beneficial impact on the community, but that didn't matter. They were respected within the police department as being good thief-takers. And if that's what we reward and that's the accountability mechanism that we have then we can't be surprised at the outcome that it generates. Um, There is one example from my hometown in Glasgow in Scotland that uh, I do like. I was uh, doing some reports some years ago on the introduction of CCTV, uh, closed-circuit television surveillance systems, video surveillance systems. And I was reading about a system of CCTV that was implemented in Glasgow that was focused on an area that was well-known and had a high level of prostitution in it. Uh, and so as I'm reading through this, I'm expecting to read that the CCTV system was installed to aid with prosecution and conviction of people participating in prostitution and involved in that business. And actually, I read that it was introduced as a way, to, as a way of protecting the women involved in the industry, even though it is still illegal in the, in the city. And somewhere, some, somewhere along the line, somebody took a step back and thought, what is the major harm I want to prevent here? I want, you know, that we, if, if violence against women is the issue there, irrespective of how they might think about the, the occupation that those women are in, I thought somewhere it has taken a, a, a mature look at the issue and taken a step back and thought about what is the long, the big-term picture of what we want to, to have a, a benefit on. So a small example, but it does fill me with some modest optimism in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary.
3: I would simply add that it's a, a big problem that we have in the United States, and that is every issue becomes something that has to become a law enforcement matter. And so we're talking about drugs, we're talking about alcohol, we're talking about um, prostitution, whatever the case might be. I, I understand there's all sorts of arguments on the, on the side that says, let's keep this stuff illegal, let's make it illegal. But I think we need to move back as a, as a polity and say, wait a second. Much of what uh, I was talking about in terms of cops feeling caught betwixt and between is because they are sent to do work that they, quite frankly, shouldn't be doing. Um, and so we, we, we do have to, to change our outlook. Um, every single problem that, that has come up in my lifetime that has been something notable, let's pass a law. Whether it's cops doing something wrong, whether it's um, politicians doing something wrong, so on and so forth, the banks, uh, whatever the case is, we want to pass a law. We need to move away from that as a as a society,
0: and to think about the the incentives in a democratic society uh, for criminalizing certain things. As David said, that we look if you anyone's ever read Bill Stunt's "Collapse of American Criminal Justice," a lot of it is about how many of our problems, such as our sentencing problem, just resulted from people demanding that we have higher sentencing. And it's not it's not experts like Jerry saying, "No, do we actually does this actually work?" Uh, it's the Democrats it's it is democratic policing. Uh, so sometimes maybe our calls for democracy might be misled in that way. On uh, the back, uh, can, can I
3: just add yeah. one, one quick thing? Everybody, I, I assume has seen the video in South Carolina where the police officer, gra- the school resource officer, grabs the kid and tosses her. Why in the world is a police officer coming in to enforce a school district rule? There's an example of where it goes overboard.
4: Anyway, uh, Jonathan Blanks, Cato Institute. Uh, I was curious, what do, what does the panel think about? Uh, Take the Eric Garner situation in Staten Island. Was there a reason that the officer had to arrest him? He, obviously, he'd used the illegal chokehold, and that obviously led to his death. But uh, do you, is there room for uh, much broader discretion for the sort of um, quality of life crimes uh, that uh, Jerry talked about earlier? And whether or not they could just say, you know, not today, Eric, move along.
3: Let me correct one thing. Chokehold is not illegal. You're allowed to wrap somebody up and put a carotid restraint on somebody. But uh, whatever the case might be, um, I've been on uh, national TV shows talking about this. Why in the world is it illegal to sell a cigarette in New York? Period, paragraph, end of story. Taxes. Once again, uh, obviously. Where's, where's Grover? We know the answer, but, but, but the point is that once again – For for whatever went wrong in that situation, the police never should have been involved because that shouldn't have been illegal, because it shouldn't be – they shouldn't have these crazy taxes, so on and so forth. So that's my argument.
4: Yeah, I I mean, look, this is a really important point, and that is – and it ties into something I think, again, has come up a number of times, that is – we do have a problem with overcriminalization in this country, and you can define that a lot of different ways. But one really important way to define it is that there are a lot of policies that uh, the government wants to implement that it does so by means of criminal law when there's absolutely no reason to be putting police in charge of these things. You know, you see, these, these, uh, you see on the Internet sometimes, oh, did you know it's illegal to do X, Y, and Z Usually that's all made up. I went online and checked some of them out. It's illegal to possess a live skunk in Tennessee, illegal for a person under 18 years old to play pinball in South Carolina. Any of you who drive in New Jersey, make sure you give an audible warning before you pass somebody on the highway because it's a crime to fail to do that. It's illegal under federal law to sell mixed nuts unless they have at least four different kinds of nuts in the can. (laughs) Are these really problems that need to be dealt with through criminal law? Answer no. But then the the, the bigger point with with the loose cigarettes in New York, what you're really doing in, in... The problem that New York is trying to solve there is that he was trying to cut in on the action of, a, of essentially um, the state of New York. He was trying to undercut their ability to reap profits from, or to, to, to reap taxes on those, uh, those cigarettes because probably somebody bought those in another state where they're taxed less and they're being sold. That's a big deal too. In fact, um, in Jerry's state of Pennsylvania, it is illegal to bring so much as one beer into the state of Pennsylvania, even if it's unopened in the trunk of your car. It's illegal. Why? Not because there's any public safety concerns, because you're cutting into their action. Only in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Pennsylvania wants to be the only people who can sell you alcohol in Pennsylvania. So and it's all about protectionism.
0: And that's just part of rethinking, or maybe we need a rethinking of what criminal law is, what prisons are used for. I don't think we've thought about that in quite a while.
1: I'm okay with not giving kids skunks, you know.
0: <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a civil infraction. There is. Matthew? Matthew? <laughs>
2: Matthew Feeney from the Cato Institute. I have a question for Clark. Uh, So I'm wondering why New Mexico was successful in uh, reform to civil uh, forfeiture. Was there a a unique uh, political situation there? Uh, is Is there something that other states could mimic?
4: Yeah, because a loudmouth city prosecutor from Las Cruces named Jerry Connolly ran off at the mouth on video. Um, Basically, he was giving a seminar on how to use civil forfeiture, and he started telling this room full of lawyers and police officers uh, all these times when they lusted after a particular car. He actually told a story about how a 2008 Mercedes pulled into a parking lot and all said, oh, God, we got to get that car. Um, He talked about how they could be czars if they would just more uh, effectively or more aggressively use civil forfeiture. He talked about how to write a civil forfeiture complaint in the most confusing way possible in order to make it as difficult to defend as possible or to defend against. Um, And he said all of this on an open mic on video and it was appalling, but he wasn't making anything up. This is just civil forfeiture policy behind the scenes. And it became such um, a massive political football when the press got a hold of it, um, which I'm not sure how they did get a hold of it, but I I think I know some people who might have been helpful in that regard. Um, And uh, it it just the whole thing became indefensible, not because um, it was unfairly uh, portrayed or distorted in any way it 's just because the public got a behind the scenes look at how it actually works, at least in his jurisdiction. They wanted no part of it so bravo to, uh, to New Mexico um, and uh, well I, I have to say we are currently we had to, we had to sue out Al- city of Albuquerque because the city of Albuquerque took the position that uh, a law saying no civil forfeiture in New Mexico did not mean no civil forfeiture in Albuquerque, which, having been there and not being too geographically challenged i 'm not sure what the argument <laughs> was there we 'll get, we'll get it sorted out.
3: <laughs> Uh,
2: Thank you. One issue that has... This is Carolyn Hemingway again. One issue that hasn't been discussed that much but has been alluded to a great deal is the role of the state legislature and our Congress in all of this. And I know that's kind of a touchy subject around here, but um, what role have i mean what is there optimism there anywhere that uh for helping make some of these changes on the civil forfeiture front i know the washington post did a big article on that a f- few months ago on 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 the whole changing of policing front where can our state and federal legislature play a role here and what optimism do you have I'll i'm not talk- looking for pessimism
3: I'll touch on one thing positive. Uh, Roger Goldman, who is at the uh, St. Louis University Law School, has been uh, at the front of a movement to figure out how to get state legislators to pass laws and get governors to sign laws that gets rid of the ability of bad cops, because there are bad cops, to move from one agency to another agency. And so basically what it is, is uh, police officers get certified by a given state, T-Clo, uh post in California, whatever the case might be. And so if you get... Fired from one police agency anywhere in the country, um, you pass a law that says in Kentucky, if you ever got fired from a police department, you cannot be hired by another police department in Kentucky. And so reach out to Roger. He will give you the legislative history of some states that are doing this and the social history of what's gone on to try to accomplish that. So that's one thing that I think is going to be positive. Because, like I said, um, there are police officers that simply shouldn't be cops, and there is a history, at least in the state of Missouri, of cops bouncing from one agency to another to another to another and doing bad things every place they go. Uh,
4: yeah, so uh, you want optimism? I got I got optimism for you, uh, at least some. Uh, states have been responding. Um, so New Mexico went uh, from we, – we graded all of the um, uh, states uh, in our report uh policing for profit. So New Mexico went from a very low grade to an A minus. It's the only state in the country that now has-
0: Albuquerque, uh, the reason for
4: the- Yeah, the minus, right, right. Um, but they eliminated it, so that's great. Uh, five states have um, uh, raised the bar recently. So in Minnesota, Nevada, Montana, and Vermont, they now require that there's a conviction before you can do civil forfeiture. So they haven't eliminated it completely, but they can't do civil forfeiture without getting a conviction on the underlying uh, predicate crime. Uh, Michigan now requires clear and convincing evidence um, of a connection to crime, which is a much higher standard than preponderance, which is the normal standard for civil forfeiture now. So there are at least some state legislatures that are moving in the right direction. Washington, D.C. actually moved in the right direction, too, by eliminating the profit incentive. Uh, So I I don't want to leave out praise there. Uh, The most important thing, I think, in in seeing these states move is what we're going to get now is the ability to have a laboratory experiment and see, for example, is it true or false that you can't do law enforcement, you can't take down the kingpins, you can't go after some people without civil forfeiture. I believe it's absolutely false false. But we're going to get a chance now to find out. Will these states have hamstrung themselves? Will they be unable to proceed against the bad guys because they can't use civil forfeiture? Um, if I were a betting man, which I am, um, I'd bet a lot of money on the answer being no. Um, they're, going to find, they're going to find ways uh, to, uh, to continue achieving uh, what the public wants them to achieve by way of law enforcement without invoking this just terrible, awful uh, credit-destroying, uh, uh, and I mean credit by, by you know... <coughs> perception, destroying policy uh, of civil forfeiture, and uh, hopefully it'll encourage more states to get rid of it when they see that it's not necessary.
0: And on the federal side, uh, Peter Kraska, who's our panelist, uh, missing, we definitely have a ton of federal grants programs that have helped with the militarization problem uh, and also have incentivized a certain type of arrest structure. Uh, based, as, we, as previous speakers have talked about, based on arrests, especially drug war arrests. So we have the COPS grant program, community-oriented policing services. We have the BURN grant program, which was ramped up drastically after 9-11. Uh, these have been part of the militarization uh, type of situation. So a lot of these are, are been on kind of more on the table than many things on the Hill right now in terms of possibly rolling them back. There are bills out there for criminal justice reform. This might be something that we could actually have some agree on, and the federal programs that have helped incentivize that uh, could be rolled back. Uh, That's a 10% possibility. So don't get too optimistic for the immediate future. Join me, uh, thanking thanking the panel, please. Always interesting.
4: That was great.